is Andy Wakefield, and this is the Andy Wakefield Podcast. This is a place where stories are told that have never been heard before. Welcome to Episode 6 of the Andy Wakefield Podcast. I'm Laurie Gregory. I'm Andy Wakefield. Hi, Laurie. Hey, Andy. So wonderful to be back here for another opportunity to hear more interesting stories about your journey in truth and science and health and medicine. And uh, this is really a continuation of our conversation in episode five, where we started to talk about vaccine failure. So I'm, I'm really curious to hear where we're going to begin today. Right. Well, here we are at the end of another decade. I gather from my spiritual friends that we're in for a bit of a cosmic shake-up next year. So <laughs> hold tight. That should be good hold for the tight. health here freedom, we go. Yeah. right? We need a shake-up. Yeah, I, uh, we've all probably been traveling for, for the holiday season and measles at airports everywhere has been sort of, you know, watch out. This is the new... It's going to get you. Ebola. Well, Ebola, we've got a vaccine for now, so thank Oh, heavens. phew, we can all sleep at night. <laughs> thank heavens for that. <laughs> I say they rush through... Is it GlaxoSmithKline's Ebola vaccine? So the FDA have approved One of the a four live Ebola felons, vaccine. Yes. Yeah, Yum. right. Yeah, live Ebola. It's a live mm. vaccine. Yes. So, oh. so let's talk about that for one second. Live right? vaccine. There's live vaccines and there's not live vaccines, right? There are all kinds of vaccines, but some of the early viral vaccines were live vaccines. So there was the oral polio vaccine was a live vaccine which has now come back to haunt us in the biggest way. It's the vast majority of paralytic polio cases worldwide now are derived from the oral polio vaccine strain. And it's, it's, it comes down to man's belief that you can isolate, adapt in a, in a laboratory setting, mutate, and then exploit these organisms which have this exquisite collective intelligence and ability to mutate and to survive, and then to expect that that's the last you're going to hear of it. And, and, and we're going to hear this more and more and more with the mumps vaccine, another live viral vaccine, chickenpox, uh, rubella vaccine, and particularly measles, which is the rod that's being used to beat the public now. You know, uh, anti-vaxxers lead to oh. resurgence of killer disease, and we see this everywhere. And as I was back in Austin over the festive season, there it was, Austin Airport. Measles case reported everywhere. It was just the news, the news, the news. It was, it was. It's pervasive, yeah. and it, it, it and it seems to truly be the stick that they're trying to use to beat us into submission of their false narrative. Um, so, of these live vaccines that you just listed, uh, measles really does seem to be the hot button. And the thing that always baffles me is I look at the one point. 8 million cases a year of autism that are diagnosed in America. And what did we have? 685 cases of measles last year. But the measles narrative is the one that's pushed to try to scare us into vaccine compliance. And you've been educating a lot of the folks that you've been talking to at various conferences and um, and really helping us to understand the parallel here between what we've seen with antibiotic resistance and superbugs and what we're now seeing with vaccine-resistant virus. Can you tell us a little bit more about that just from a... Yeah, certainly. In the, in the last episode, we talked about the pre-vaccine era and what was happening to measles. You know, was it a killer disease? Was it rot? 
what they really said it was, or was it something different? And, and, and what I was describing was that by the time the vaccine came in, there had been a 99.96% reduction in case fatality rate. So the severity of measles was going down dramatically over a very, very short period. So as a visual, since we're radio, we don't, we don't have a visual, but if we were to draw that on a, on a bell curve, literally the bell would have already peaked and we were at the very tail end. In other words, natural herd immunity had almost eradicated measles. Is that correct? Well, what had, what had happened is that measles was a major killer of children, 1,200 per million during, for, for example, prior to the 1920s in developed countries like the UK. And then in a very short space of time, there had been this extraordinary fall in the severity of measles such that mortality in 1961, and we'll talk about that date mm-hmm. a little more, was in the UK one in 500,000 children as reported by Sir Graham Wilson, who was one of the world's leading uh, microbiologists at the time, wrote the definitive textbook on, on microbiology. And so let's go to that period, 1961, because that was when a meeting was held at the National Institutes of Health, uh, really under the auspices of the, the NIH and the CDC, to discuss the merits of universal measles vaccination. So they considered there be, to have been a great success with smallpox and, and polio and, and whatever the truth of that, they were determined to emulate that with, with measles virus, even though it was uh, considered at the time to be a mild childhood disease. It wasn't even perceived to be the killer disease that we are told it is now. It was it, it, Francis Langmuller, um, who was the head of the CDC at the time, said that this isn't about mortality or morbidity. It's about the fact that we've got the technology in effect to do this. So why not use it? It's not about this is such an imminent threat that it's going to destroy our nation. We have it. Why not use it? So Graham Wilson voiced his concerns about universal measles vaccination. What are we doing? We really don't know. And we wouldn't it be better to study that one in 500,000 children who die from measles to determine what's different about them. Right, because really, this is the one bafflement that I have with Western medicine, is that they will take one concept, one microbe, one molecule, whatever, one drug, and apply it across the whole population and assume, right, that there are going to be the same kind of reactions. There's a a discounting of the individual and their and their individual immunity, right? So if there's one kid in 500,000 that's dying from measles, clearly there's something different in the immune code of that kid that's worth looking at, correct? Absolutely. And, and it's not just people see this in terms of genetics. We're genetically different. Yes, we are. But there are right. so many other variables associated with exposure to infectious disease. Right. There are those that are associated with our genetic makeup, but then there are those associated with the age when, we, when we're exposed or sure. the dose of exposure. How many of our siblings come home from school and infect us at the same time? Mm. Their primary cases, index cases in the community, they get measles at school. They get a brief tangential exposure to someone who coughs on them. They come home, they cough over you all night. And if you share a bed or a room because you live in cramped, crowded dwellings and you're a large family, that secondary case 
usually the home-dwelling sibling, therefore the baby, right. gets a massive dose massive of infection. Dose. So sure. these historical patterns of infectious disease, the way in which we're exposed, were a major determinant, probably more important than genetics. Because um, genes are changing, right? Genes are turning on and off. I mean, DNA are expressing different ways at different times. So that's a moving target. And you have diet, you have, you know, you have uh, clean water. I mean, there are so many factors that could contribute to that one in 500,000. That's right. And comorbidity, you have another infection at the same time. So historically, it was common that, mm -hmm. you know, many infections were circulating, particularly enteric infections, you know, intestinal infections, diarrheal diseases in children where there was poor sanitation and measles uh, targets the intestine and can make that a lot worse. So if you have that plus another disease, plus you're malnourished, plus your vitamin A levels are low, then you can see how all of those things are going to conspire to alter the outcome from measles. So measles was highly complex, but as things changed, as the socioeconomic circumstances, the pattern of viral exposure, and possibly even the virus itself changed over the course of the late 19th and 20th centuries, then we saw this dramatic fall in more mortality. So by the time that measles vaccination was entertained in 1960, 1961, then it had become a mild disease. But nonetheless, the vaccinologists won the day. We're going to have universal measles vaccination. And how did they win the day? Well, they won the day on a set of promises. And those promises were that this vaccine, about which they knew very little, that had been isolated, the virus had been isolated by John Enders at Harvard and turned into what they called an attenuated or weakened form of the virus. Somehow, they had no idea how that had been done. It was sort of laboratory hocus-pocus, but there it was. They knew nothing about the changes that they'd created in the molecular characteristics of this virus. They knew nothing, nothing at all, except that we as man are superior to the microbe and we can conquer it. And so we were promised that it would be the rapid source of eradication of measles. Not just eradication, in fact, but measles would be eradicated rapidly. Number two, that the vaccine would produce immunity akin to natural immunity in the vast majority of people who got the vaccine. Number three is that it would be lifelong. The, li the vaccine immunity would be just like natural immunity. One exposure would last for life. Number four is that there would be no death, there would be no brain damage, there would be no adverse outcome from this mild, weakened form of the vaccine. Next, that the vaccine would not spread from those who were vaccinated to those who were unvaccinated and susceptible to measles. It I'm was counting, a that's number five. Is it number five? Okay. And so far they've failed on all five of those. Well, they have, it's 60, they, um, almost 60 years later, and we've achieved none of that. Well, that's right. All of these promises have been completely empty. They have, and, and, and the other concern is that it wouldn't revert to some wild strain of measles. It wouldn't mm. mutate. This is the, one of the problems that we face today, is things, the unintended consequences of the use of this imperfect vaccine, because that's what it is. And you mentioned this, uh, this parallel with antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and it is so true. So when vaccines, when antibiotics came in, sorry, after the discovery of penicillin by Sir Alexander Fleming and the, then the laboratory purification 
uh, at Oxford University of penicillin than its universal use. It was a miracle. It was a medical miracle. This is the greatest thing we've ever done. And it, at the time, and it's a question of perception, it was. It had a huge impact on the natural history of diseases that had to that point been really, really nasty. Mm -hmm. Neurosyphilis, for example. Mm -hmm. Syphilis was the great pox that swept the world. So mm -hmm. smallpox was smallpox. Syphilis was the great pox. And it was a major killer of people, particularly throughout Europe, um, scarlet fever. These diseases that we hear very little about today, these sort of uh, and battlefield gangrene during the Second gangrene, World War, for right. example, had a profound effect. So it was a miracle, but the miracle turned to nightmare. And the miracle turned to nightmare because, in large part, the imperfect nature of the kill rate of the antibiotic on the bacteria led some, just a small percentage of those bacteria, to survive. Mm -hmm. They had some molecular machinery that allowed them to survive the toxicity of the antibiotic. And of course, when everything else was killed, they became the dominant strain. And so they reproduced, and they reproduced very, very rapidly to become antibiotic-resistant bacteria. So we introduced more powerful, more broad-spectrum antibiotics, and for a time, that temporized. It produced benefit. But again, a, a small same percentage frog. survived. Same thing, right? And that small percentage turned into what are now multi-resistant, highly dangerous killer bacteria for which we have no answers. And so hospitals are being closed, prosthetic surgeries being stopped, this kind of thing, because many, many, many people are getting these infections, mm -hmm. particularly in hospital. They cannot get rid of them with antibiotics, and they are killers. And so what the, the manufacturers have done in these circumstances is to say, there is no point in us continuing to research new antibiotics because by the time we bring this drug to market, they'll have mutated. They're already, they're already gone. They're so already moved on. You're on your own, guys. Wow. Okay, deal with it. And we'll move on to more profitable markets like vaccines. Like vaccines, <laughs> right, which yield us really bigger market for all of the other products you have to purchase to treat the vaccine reactions. You know, there's so many parallels, Andy. When are we going to learn as a species? Because we did the same thing in 1961 with measles that we did with the polio vaccine in 1955, right? Mm -hmm. Polio was already 99% eradicated, natural herd immunity, same bell curve, right? I think, I think it's fair to say that the mortality from polio had fallen dramatically before the vaccine was introduced. Now, is that just part of the cycling of polio mortality, or is that a genuine, would that have been a genuine sustained effect? But the truth is we'll never know the benefit of the vaccine or otherwise, we've because, well, we've interfered and we've made up the numbers. Yeah. So that when polio vaccine was introduced, then they changed the criteria for what constituted a case of paralytic polio. And Dr. Bernard Greenberg from University of North Carolina testified in front of Congress in the 70s that in 1956, one year after the polio vaccine was introduced, that this biostatistics were fudged to show that the vaccine reduced the number of cases of polio in America when in reality they increased. But the numbers were being buried. We were seeing problems. And I'm, I'm just like, it's, there are patterns here. 
Yes, perversion of the data. An arrogance is, you know, of is, science. Is one of the things, because so we cannot say, and I can't say with any um, authority whatsoever what the benefits of polio vaccine have been or not. No, not when we see headlines in all the corporate media last year about this strange paralysis affecting children, right? Acute flaccid myelitis, which looks an awful lot like polio symptoms. Well, so, you wonder why we haven't got to the bottom of it, because quite right. honestly, you know, the molecular technology that's available to define new bugs or old bugs and we have new it. guys, we have it. Why don't we know about this? This this is not We're not being given all of, the information. You know, we're not, no, we are not. No, yeah. we are not. And, and Samoa would be another example now with measles, right? Yeah. Which explained to me why a country would have a policy that if a child presents with measles symptoms, you would vaccinate them? Isn't that a policy in Samoa? Well, again, we're moving here. We're, we're I know we're rapid. all over the place we're here, but there's on, but so it much is, It is a no-no. It is absolutely it's a no-no. If you have a child with measles to vaccinate them, um, that's, I don't, that is a policy. It seems to be a policy. There are certainly reports of that from Samoa. We're going to get to the bottom of what's happening into Samoa. At least we're going to try. So yeah, that's something yeah. that... We will be coming Stay back tuned. to reporting we'll, we'll on. We'll come Absolutely. back with some more information we, on that. Yeah, our yeah. man in Samoa. So we will get to the bottom of that because something extraordinary is happening in Samoa and we are not being given the truth. And people are sufficiently seasoned now in what is the truth and what isn't the truth and what they should be told and what they're not being told. Mm-hmm. That There is enough concern that we should investigate Samoa thoroughly. And it may be a, a turning point in our understanding of measles in the modern world. But let's let's go back now to 61, because mm-hmm. it's a really important Absolutely. date. The vaccinologists won the day, and they won the day to introduce universal vaccination. And they did it. Initially, the, the, the policy was with the Edmonston B vaccine, which was the, the initial isolate that uh, had been made in Harvard by John Enders and his that team. That was the weakened strain. Yes, but it wasn't weakened. It was described as toxic as hell. And in fact, this was a vaccine that was initially used in trials in children in state schools like Willowbrook. Let's talk about Willowbrook because it is such an important story, horrifically important story. I think yeah, it's absolutely worth taking time away from the main narrative to talk about Willowbrook because it is so instructive about the origins of modern vaccinology and vaccine practice in the United States of America, which, of course, has been exported worldwide. Willowbrook State School in Staten Island, New York, was a place where children with severe physical and mental disabilities, described at the time as feeble-minded or retarded children, were housed. It was meant to be for 4,000 children. In fact, 6,000 children were crammed into into that institution they were naked, they were described as the, there was feces, excrement smeared all over the walls. There was one carer for every 50 or 60 children. It, it was a living hell. Horror. And this was described by uh, Robert Kennedy Sr., who went on to become the senator of New York. He was, I think, at the time, the attorney general. He went there, visited it, and described it as worse than the cages in which we put animals in a zoo. And, but it was a perfect place at least for the vaccinologists, because it's where they could test the safety and effectiveness of their vaccines. These children were a captive audience. They couldn't say no. They were, I suppose, in the minds of those vaccinologists, expendable. Their deaths were not a price that uh, society could not pay. So it, it was a tragic, tragic situation. And 
in that institution, children were deliberately infected with diseases such as hepatitis B. They were given um, unpurified fecal extracts of, of those infected with hepatitis B in order to watch what the natural history of hepatitis B infection was in such children. They were given measles infection to see what the natural history of measles was, and they were used as experimental guinea pigs for the early vaccines as well, including the Edmonston B vaccine, which was this one described as toxic as hell. So Willowbrook is a story that absolutely must be told if people in this country are to understand where the claims, quite apart from the ethical issues which we could debate from here to the end of time, uh, the claims of the 100% effectiveness of this vaccine or the safety of this vaccine. These claims were made based upon experiments conducted in places like Willowbrook or indeed in Nigeria or latterly in the Yanomami Indians in the Orinoco Basin in South America. And that's another story that we can talk about. And this plays into our Samoan narrative as well. I think one thing I'd love to do as we move forward with this series is to bring on Patrick Tierney, a great friend of mine. And, and I've been studying measles for 30 years. Patrick knows more about measles than I will ever know. He is an extraordinary resource. Yeah, we must have him on. He, a he's brilliant the man. celebrated author and award-winning novelist, uh, wrote uh, uh, Darkness at El Dorado. Darkness in El Dorado, absolutely. Uh, yes. Yeah, he would be wonderful to uh, have on as a guest. We'll have to arrange that. Uh, so we see these unsavory origins of this vaccinology program and this explosive narrative now that continues to be pushed. Where do you think we're, we go next? How are we going to carve our way through this? I know the, the conversation will continue. We're not going to be able to answer all the questions today in this podcast. But just as we close here on this particular episode, where do you see it going? I was asked to write a lecture series on vaccines, safety and efficacy, and to raise some money for the film, the current film. Mm. And I initially accepted, and I thought, I can't do that. I'm not an authority on vaccines per se. I'm not in the business of going into it and making mistakes because I'm not an expert. I do know something about measles. I've studied measles for 30 years as a prototypic live viral infection, as a sort of major determinant of man's historical evolution, if you like, is the interaction, the ecological interaction between man and micro measles in particular. And so I'm fascinated by measles. So I could do it for measles. I could talk about measles, but I couldn't talk about all these other vaccines. So I went back and I said, look, I'll do this, but I'll focus on measles. And so halfway through making that lecture series, I, and bear in mind, I'd been away for this for some time in in making films. I suddenly realized what was going on. I suddenly realized what it was they knew, what it was they were trying to keep from us. And it was at the time just a a feeling. It was... Like an intuition. uh, Yes. I did not know at that time that actually the pieces were already in place, that the puzzle pieces of this extraordinary story had actually been set on the table into some natural order. As I researched it further, I realized that we were far further down this slide into obscurity, into who knows where, than I had ever imagined. And so um, that leads us into the next part of our story. Which we'll talk about on Episode 7. We will. Thank you, Andy. 
You've been listening to the Andy Wakefield Weekly Podcast, a place where stories are being told that have never been heard before. This is a Seventh Chakra Films production in collaboration with Brick City Creative. Please follow and like us while you still can on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at 1986 The Act, and soon on Sphere.